I'm also just, as it relates to Colossae Beaverton, want to invite you to pray continually for that next space for us. We recognize that 2.30 on a Sunday afternoon is not ideal for really any, any person, I don't think. I don't think anybody thinks, I want to have a commitment at 2.30 on a Sunday afternoon. But what it is is God's provision for us in this season, and we're going to say, thank you, Lord. And we're going to say, God's people, please pray for what is next so that we can, can have something that works uh, more permanently and works better for the whole. So would you pray to those, for those two things? Uh, beginnings. Beginnings of the year. Beginnings uh, are always an interesting time. Uh, beginnings are a great place to contemplate where you are going. Nobody starts out on a road trip without a destination in mind or without reference to a map, unless you're retired and in an RV. That's a very select population. But the rest of us, we know where we need to get to, and some clue is how we're going to get there. Or perhaps you don't even start your day without reference to the appointments and commitments you have on your calendar. That we are aware that we have somewhere we're headed. Uh, And even at the beginning of a year, we're aware of places we might want to improve or goals we have. But what I want to suggest to you this morning is that we are never static as people. We're never static. We're always in motion, if you will, as it relates to our character. We're always moving. We're either growing or regressing, growing or deteriorating in some way. Character is something that's always forming, always in motion. And therefore, we have to be alert as to where we're headed and to what end. In other words, we're always being formed. Uh, the, the question we have to wrestle with is always, how am I being formed? To what end am I being formed? Am I being formed in the pattern of the world or towards the likeness of Jesus? And so this is why Paul exhorts the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 12, to not be conformed to the patterns of this world. In other words, the, there are forces at work that want to shape your imagination and desires and character and all these things. But he says, no, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so we're in this series called Formed by the Spirit, asking the question, how do we partner with God in this formation, in this this being formed towards Jesus-like life? Well, I have had more dad fails than I can count. Uh, I'm almost 13 years into being a dad, and now I got to tell you, I have more dad fails than I can count. I can counter. They can. They might be able to tell you most of them, but uh, I, I mean, there. I've failed with everyone, maybe equally. I mean, from the time we had an infant that I left on a changing table and I walked out to the rest of the family and I was like, "Hey, where's the baby?" Like dead serious. Like you're not supposed to do that, by the way, if you don't have kids. Uh, to there's one time with my oldest daughter, uh, which, by the way, your oldest child gets the brunt of all of your parental naivete. They're just a sad guinea pig, and they want to perform so bad. Your youngest child, whoever they are, they don't appreciate how much you've grown. They just want you to get on their page. So anyway, you're, you're, but your oldest is always trying to measure up. Well, I remember with my oldest, Penny, she was probably four, maybe five at the oldest, and I remember her having some kind of breakdown in her room. Don't remember what it was, don't remember how we got there, but she was crying, and she wasn't on board with something I had asked of her. It wasn't clicking. And I remember in all of my parental brilliance, 
grabbing her by the shoulders, looking her square in the eye and saying, get it together. Now, if you're four, that doesn't mean anything, okay? That, all that means is I'm doing a bad job, I'm not good enough, right? That's all that means when you're four. Uh, now, let's just try this on for a second. What if God the Father treats humanity like that? What if the Father says to humanity, you have become wicked. Now get it together, people. Just snap out of it. I think of that old Bob Newhart, Newhart sketch. I think it's from the 70s where he's a counselor and somebody comes into the office with some presenting issues and Bob Newhart says, stop it. Just Just stop it. And that's all he has to say to her over and over and over as she talks about all of her problems. Just stop it. Well, we can't just stop it. We can't just pull ourselves together. Now, uh, it would leave us in this position of staring into an abyss when it came to mapping out character or how we would get it together at all or what it would look like to have it together. Often, I think this is how religious people look to the world around us, that It's a constant feeling bad about how we don't have it together. And so we show up somewhere every week where somebody tells us to get it together and then we go out and fail again. This is probably what it looks like. Well, I have good news for you. This is not the gospel. This is not the good news of Jesus. In fact, what we have from the author of Hebrews is a description of Jesus and it's this. We don't have a high priest, that's a mediator, a go-between God and people, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In other words, what's happened is the gospel declares a God who's come near. A God who has come near, and that's utterly unique. In all the world religions, uh, the advice is get it together. You have to approach God. You have to make the approach. Christianity alone has a God who makes the approach to you. There is no pilgrimage to him. He has made it to you. And he's been tempted. He gets the difficulty of humanity. And he acts as a priest to bring grace and help. And so when we talk about who we're becoming, what we're saying here is it's the opposite of a God who grabs us by the shoulders and says, get it together. Instead, what he says is he holds us by the hand and he says, look at my son. Look at the one who has it together. And as you trust him, he holds you together. And he invites you to follow, to be someone who is integrated together in him. A loving father gets on the level of the child, sits down, looks him in the eye and says, I love you. Let me help you. Step one is going to be take a big breath. Step two is going to be just pick up the Legos, right? Or whatever the thing is. And here's the deal. Jesus Christ has come not only as a priest to represent us in all his perfection and splendor and glory to God, but actually Hebrews also says that he's the trailblazer, the pioneer of our faith, the guide on the great adventure of what it actually means to be a human. That's what he's come to do. He doesn't say, get it together, you loser. He actually says, look at Jesus and follow. And this is why By the way, as soon as Jesus announces the kingdom of God, this governance of God, this reign and rule of God that's broken into a broken world, as soon as he announces that and says, turn around and repent repent and, and believe, turn around and trust, be loyal, be aligned to this announcement, this proclamation and good news, he says, the next very thing he does is he looks at actual people and he says, come follow me. 
This is what you get in Mark's account. Jesus announces the kingdom in chapter 1. And then verse 16, passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. He meets them where they are in their vocation. And he, they were fishermen. Verse 17 says, and Jesus said to them, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. In other words, I'm going to change your vocation and give you a new mission and reorient your whole purpose. And immediately they left their nets and followed him because God's word was effective in their life. And so the mark of God's kingdom community is a group of people who are followers first, who are learners, apprentices to Jesus. Unfortunately, a lot of current and modern misunderstanding of what God's kingdom means is that it gets diminished or minimized into just merely social projects, social action. But that's to put the cart before the horse. The kingdom comes first and invites men and women to be devoted to a king, to be in relationship and live in a transformed way. And those men and women end up doing justice. Uh, that's what the summon means. To come follow me means to become like the one I follow. And so here we are, we're doing this series called Formed by the Spirit, where we're looking at the work of the Spirit always is the work of making us more and more like Jesus. This is the, the, the thing that Paul says in Romans 8, is that the destiny of every believer in Christ is to become like him which means that everything else in your life is simply an opportunity for growth. And so what we're saying in this series this January is to say, what does it look like then to be formed by the Spirit in Christ-likeness? And the thing that we grasp when we look at Jesus as the trailblazer is that we're not left without a map. We're not left staring into the abyss. We're not left with a God who grabs us by the shoulders and says, get it together, figure that out. What he says is actually you're invited to travel the well-worn path that's been worn by Jesus, the Son of God. But I wonder this. I wonder if perhaps we look at the life of Jesus and we don't necessarily see it as a map to be followed, as waypoints for human life. I wonder if instead we just look at Jesus and we say, oh, he's my substitute. He died in my place, thank God. And if that were all he did, that would be tremendous. But that's not all. Some of us maybe look at Jesus with a little bit more skepticism, and we at least maybe just see an itinerant prophet preacher who was at odds with the empire. Or maybe we see a, a, a teacher who was at odds with the religious establishment. But what most of us, I would argue, do is we look at Jesus and we thumb through the Gospels and we run into these accounts of his life in the church, and then we say, that's a life that's beyond my reach. We default to saying, I'm just the way I am. I, I'm just this way. That's just my personality. And if we look at Jesus and instead of seeing a roadmap for what true human flourishing looks like, if instead we see a life that's out of reach for us, beyond our access to living that way, let me suggest why we are there or how maybe we got there. And then I'd like to show you how Jesus actually maps a way of transformed life. Um, the first reason, and the main reason perhaps, we look at the life of Jesus and habitually see it as a life that's beyond us, a life that we, it's not accessible to me to follow and be like and resemble. The first reason is a bit academic, 
I'll break it down into something a little bit more practical, but let me just walk with me for a second. The last two to 300 years, particularly though, and sharply in the 20th century, there was an increasing academic understanding that Jesus wasn't really God, right? So within the academic circles of Europe and America, uh, at least within certain segments, the God stuff about Jesus was thought to have been made up, that the divinity of Jesus was some later addition by the church, that he didn't say some of the things that he said that would tip in in the direction of sharing an identity with Yahweh. No self-respecting Jew would have ever done that, so it was said. And Jesus couldn't have really said he was God at all. In fact, we know as moderns beforehand with an assumption that the universe is closed, that God doesn't intervene if there is a God at all, that he's made the thing and lets it run, but he couldn't have entered life as a human. Maybe Jesus had a higher God consciousness, so it was thought. He might be a great moral teacher, but God in the flesh, as the Gospels declare, certainly not. Well, this kind of thinking, very popular belief, became a default way of thinking for many mainline churches in Europe and North America. And the result, of course, is that the more theologically orthodox or conservative uh, churches and educational institutions made a very big, important swing to say, no, he's actually divine. Look at what he claims. Look at how it lines up with the scriptures and look at how all these things, that Jesus is in fact God. And so what gets lost, however, in that kind of environment? If we're saying, hey, Jesus is God and that's what's important, and it is an important conclusion, it's true, but what Orthodox Christianity has always claimed is the mystery that he's God and man, that he's human and divine, and they're equally important. And so if I'm focused on how God-like, or God Jesus is, I'm going to, in that environment, always be reading through the Gospels with that argument in my head, and I'll miss the fact that Jesus is also human. And so I'll read through the Gospels, and I'll see this great act of compassion and say, of course he's compassionate, he's God. We see him heal people. Of course he'd heal people. He's God. We see him do these things and respond with the scriptures saturating his mind and say, well, gosh, he wrote it, right? And we immediately reject the idea that that's a life I'm meant to live because, well, he's God. And so we look at the totality of Jesus's life and see God, which is the right conclusion. But if we miss the conclusion that he's also truly human, a spirit-filled human, then we will err. Because the scriptures also say he's, in every way he's like us, yet without sin. That he is the trailblazer of the kingdom life. And his invitation to you to trust and obey is that invitation to be like him, fully alive as spirit-filled humans. Let me put it in a more just kind of very practical setting. So that, that's maybe a historical explanation for why we look at Jesus and go, that's beyond me. But then there's this, too. I think when you watch your favorite quarterback, your favorite pitcher, your favorite point guard, and you watch them play, and you're stunned by their energy, their charisma, their stamina, their strength, the way they just make that shot look so easy, and you just think, they're on another level. They're on another level than you. You could never be like that. But what that fails to recognize is maybe they have a genetic leg up on you, but it often misses the fact that they've spent thousands and thousands of hours practicing in drills and conditioning. 
I remember watching the, uh, and I was late to the game on this docuseries, but when I watched The Last Dance, which is the docuseries on, that ESPN did on Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls 1997 season, their last season, it was, it was stunning because the way everybody talked about Jordan was that he was truly the best on the court. And equally, they all said, and he worked harder than anyone they'd ever seen play. There is no Jordan without hours and hours and hours of work. Here's what Luke says. In fact, there's this remarkable moment in Jesus's life where he went missing to his parents. He wasn't missing to himself. He hung out at the temple precincts on purpose and it torqued his mom off pretty good. She came home and, or came and got him and Luke recounts what happened. He went down with them, came to Nazareth, 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 thank you, and was submissive to them. So he's obeying like a good Jewish boy. And uh, his mother treasured all these things up in her heart, which, by the way, just this week I noticed that connection, the submission of Jesus, the treasuring of Mary. It's not like Mary is some, like, super mom. She's like every other mom. He obeyed. She's treasuring it, right? Like, that's, that's how that goes. Um, none of us are ever treasuring the tantrums. We, gr- we go through it. We treasure the child who's having the tantrum. Right? And Mary's treasuring the moment, right? And so, and then look at what Luke says. And Jesus, verse 52, increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus, the son of God, is submissive to his parents like all the other Jewish boys and girls. And then it says that he increased in wisdom and stature and favor or grace. Here's a word increase. The idea of increase is that he gained progress. He didn't like start with it all. He actually had to make headway in this life saturated with God's presence. It's actually this, this word that's used for increase. It's, uh, it's Greek kind of root understanding was that it was a nautical term. This term means to make headway, gain progress against the blows that hit the bow of the ship. That's the that's where this word comes from. Luke knows this. He spent time on boats, right? We read about this with him and, and Paul and Acts. He knows what he's saying. He's saying that Jesus, like you, had to make progress in wisdom and grace. He had to make progress against the blows. And oftentimes we just dismiss ourselves from the life of Jesus because we go, oh, he's God. Luke says, yeah, but he had to make progress as a human against the blows of hormones, against the blows of obstacles and emotions and battling desires within and hunger. Jesus was hungry, made him crabby, and he had to deal with it. He, he had a lack of energy. He was tired. He had intrusions and frustrations and interruptions and betrayals and things outside of his control and everything we face. Because Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that he emptied himself, made himself a servant. The idea of emptying himself is this, that he set aside getting to play that God card. He didn't cease to be God, but he put aside the independent use of his divinity and lived fully as a human. And so instead of getting to play that God card every time he wanted out of something hard, he made progress against the blows 
of the difficult circumstances that every one of us faces. And so, notice that the first conversions recorded by Matthew and Mark aren't invitations to say a prayer or have a mystical experience, but to become a student, an apprentice, to come and learn and do what the master does, to learn and be who the master is. And so if Jesus is not a life that you can dismiss yourself from resembling or growing into because it's the truest form of humanity that the world's ever seen, he truly imaged God, then let's look at how we might begin to follow him. How might we be formed like Jesus? And I mean that in two ways. One, we're to be like Jesus because he's the goal. He's what true humanity is meant to resemble. But we also are to become like Jesus in the way that Jesus became like Jesus. We're to follow his example and how he lived a life full of the Spirit, formed by the Spirit. And so what are those ways? That's what we'll look at kind of as an intro this week, and then really we'll go further after it in the next two. Um, so here's the thing. We're, we're not left without a map. We have four accounts, four angles on Jesus's life. And uh, the first thing I want to highlight, how, Jesus, how we follow Jesus in this way of formation is this. The, the thing I want you to see is that he had an identity that was formed by the Father. Jesus' identity is formed by the Father. How you live every day is actually a function of who you understand yourself to be. And so our behavior and our attitudes are far more than a result of abstract principles or beliefs, but they actually are the result of an identity of who we think we are. Who we are is foundational to who we, how we live. If you find yourself and understand yourself to be profoundly valuable or, or of worth, you won't be reckless. If you understand yourself as having worth that comes from something beyond what you can do or your performance, you won't be crushed when criticism comes your way and so on and so forth. And so when we look at Jesus, we see a person who's deriving their identity from a relationship. And it's a relationship that sets the tone for everything else in his life. It's an identity that sets the tone for everything else in his life. Look at Mark chapter 1 with me, uh, where it says uh, in his baptism, verse 9, that he went down to the Jordan River, and uh, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. Jesus, it seems, lives his life of ministry as the beloved, as the one who's not living to be the beloved, but living as the beloved. He is the pleasing one. And so he can live from that place, not for it. And so it enables him to give himself. It enables him to love others when they don't reciprocate, when they don't agree, when they're not on the same page. He does everything from that identity of the beloved. He has the worth already. He doesn't need you to love him for him to be of worth. He just wants to extend it to you. So here's the deal. In Christ, if you're, you're aligned with him, your trust is in him, you are the beloved. This is an identity for you. You become, in Christ, the beloved, the well-pleasing son or daughter of the Most High God. That's the reality. And so it's an identity for you and for me. It's an identity 
that you don't go earn. You can't. It's not something you uh, achieve or something you even incorporate into your pursuits and other hats that you wear. It actually becomes the foundation of who you are entirely. And so therefore, God and his work of forming you by the Spirit, he's only making you look more like who you already are in Christ as the beloved, well-pleasing son or daughter. And, and we follow Jesus in this, that, that he receives his identity from the Father's love. And let me just encourage you right now, as our nation is in this moment of profound struggle, that the great need, I think, for the church is to do the hard work of identity. Because what happens is when we attach our identity of who I am, who I understand myself to be, where I get my worth and my security and my stability, if you attach that to an ideology, be it left or right, the Bible calls that idolatry. You're entitled to your opinion. But God says, when I start attaching who I am to any ideology, to anything that's in the place of God, to call me who I am as a son or daughter, I am moving towards something idolatrous, which will be a stranglehold on my faith. It will render me an inaccurate witness. So the church is called to live from the place of the beloved, not from the left or the right. And when we do, when we anchor our identity as Jesus did in the love of the Father, you know what that does? It expands your ability for community. It makes you someone who's able to sit in the tension, to not write people off, to hold tension and hold space for the other, to love as you've been loved. And that actually becomes a very accurate witness. And I'm saying that's not a policy problem. It's an identity problem when we don't live there. Okay? Are you with me? This is the call in this moment. Let's be a people anchored with our identity in this place of love because what it does is it enables us to love in the fashion Jesus did. And nobody wants that. They want us to make enemies. But Jesus' way makes friends. Okay? And so this is, this is the... This is the way. <laughs> um, for Mandalorians and Christians alike. All right. That's not all, though. Jesus doesn't just have an identity that's, that's, that's founded in the Father's love. He also has an imagination that's shaped by the story. We spent all of last year. 2020 was a year that we just spent Genesis to Revelation. It was a year soaking in the story. Is that forming you? Do, do you see yourself as a character, loved, well-pleasing to the Father in his story of redemption from creation to consummation? You see, Jesus was a person who was saturated in the story. The next episode is after the baptism of Jesus is that the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And so as the spirit leads him into the wilderness, he's tempted to achieve good ends, feed people, be, uh, receive all nations' loyalty. All those, those are good ends. He's encouraged to do so through the wrong means. 
Here's the question. What kind of person is tempted to look, achieve the wrong thing or the right thing the wrong way and respond with Deuteronomy 6 through 9? Like what kind of mind would sit in that scenario and go, you know what makes the most sense of this moment? Pull up Deuteronomy. That's not just because he's God. That's because he, from the time of his youth, was saturated in the story, that his imagination was shaped by the story. And he saw himself replaying Israel's story where they failed, he was able to stand. He replayed humanity's story, replaying the garden in a way in which he was able to stand because he recognized the illegitimacy of the means and he trusted the word of the Father. And so, let me just call this out for a second. How are we doing? When we look at these things, when we look at Jesus and we say, okay, he was formed with an identity that was based on the Father's word to him. He had an imagination that was saturated and shaped by the story of God. Are we describing things that are so beyond the reach of your life? Does it, is this beyond you? Not at all. This is absolutely essential to you, and it's actually available to you. We don't look at the life of Jesus and then immediately write ourselves out of it. We actually can look at the life of Jesus and say, I, I can do the hard work of identity and pull apart the lies and let the Father's love actually dictate who I am. I can look at my life as it's narrated by God's story and see each moment and the contours of my life narrated as part of his story. We're not looking at something that's inaccessible to you. So you, like Jesus, you, have, you are a character, loved. You're in a story. It's his it's applicable to your life here today. Actually, maybe we should say it the other way. Our life is applicable to this. It would change us. What if that story was God's story and you were in it? The second two things. So that's the first two things we see Jesus demonstrate in the way of formation, that he has an identity, that he has an imagination formed by the Father's love. It's formed by the story of the scriptures. The next two things we see and the, the habits of Jesus are these. He has these habits of withdrawal, and he has habits of engagement. What I mean here is that Jesus is not always giving out. We talk about his self-giving love, and he is the king of self-giving love. But notice what he does after he's been healing and teaching and confronting the demonic forces of the world Mark tells us in verse 35 that rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went to be in a desolate place. And there he prayed. Right? If, God, if Jesus was playing the God card alone, he could just sleep in and say, what's up, me? What should we do today? That's not it. He's the second person of the Trinity and he's fully human. And so he is tired and he's been giving out. And he needs to withdraw so that he can take in, so he can go be with the Father and pray. He's human. It means his withdrawal for prayer in this moment means that in order for Jesus to continually be the kind of person that he was, means that he needed habits to sustain that life of giving out, which means he had to fill up. He had to get quiet. He had to get alone with God. He had to practice a discipline of prayer. 
Not just because he had to, but because he delighted to, because it was his great delight to be with the Father in the Spirit, in prayer. And he didn't just draw an eternity past and say, oh, I'm good, I had enough time with God, as God. No, he, he lives a spirit-filled human life and that requires regular withdrawal to go be in an uncrowded space, undistracted. And here's where we get tripped up. You and I might look at our weekly habits, our daily habits and practices and think, I can never get that kind of time away. I couldn't begin to have that kind of undistracted time. Let me just encourage you here at the beginning of this year that um, it's something to work toward. Encourage you to work towards those undistracted moments and habits and practices. And to do that, you have to just start with the moments you do have. How might you redesign your own moments? Perhaps you're in a life stage where no one else is interrupting you in the shower. Me and just encourage you that those are five to 10 to 15, depending on who you are in my family, sometimes 30 minutes. That water bill kills me, but somebody needs it. So you, you, but look at your moments and say, where can I withdraw to go be with God? Maybe you have a commute still. Is that a time where you can focus in on who God is in your life and pray or on a walk. The question though is this, if I have no withdrawal from God in my life or to be with God in my life, then all of my life will just be simply a series of withdrawals from me. And then I become somebody who from waking to sleeping just gets drained and it's all withdrawals. It's, and then there's no withdrawal for me to go be with God and be filled up. Let me put it this way. If the Son of God couldn't sustain a life like that, what makes us think that we will be able to give infinitely if he couldn't? Because here's the deal. The infinite one offers you a way to live in your finiteness. It's to practice withdrawal, to be alone with him, the infinitely good and giving God. But we wouldn't be very like Jesus if we only withdrew and contemplated God and never embodied him to others. This is the next thing we see. Look at verse 36 with me. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you, Jesus. And he said to them, okay, let's go on to the next towns, and I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went through all Galilee, preaching their synagogues and casting out demons. Two observations really quick. Jesus is very interruptible. He didn't say, you guys, I needed my time alone, right? He's interruptible. It means he's not slave to his habit and practice of prayer. The second thing is that Jesus' engagement with people is very purposeful. He doesn't also equally say to them, you're right, everybody's looking for me. We better do what they want, right? In fact, Jesus is very differentiated here. He's not defined by people's wants. Simon's coming and saying, don't you know you're already a celebrity and everybody wants you? You better go give them what they want. Jesus says, you're right, let's go. Let's leave that town and go on to the next one because he knows what he's about and he has boundaries. And so he's willing to say, you can interrupt me, but there's a greater purpose. And it's to go tell other people about the kingdom. It means this, that you and I are made to withdraw to be with God, but we're also made to be engaged in order to demonstrate his kingdom to others not to be a slave to our practices or the expectation of the people around us, but we're made to do the things 
that God calls us to, made to do the things that embody God's kingdom where he puts you, that Jesus knew that the next town was his objective. What do you know about your life in this moment? Let me just encourage you here. Where has God called you to pour out care? What is your relational capacity in this moment? What are your resources? What, what are the places where you are called to work and, and signal that there is another kingdom and there is good news? Maybe it's as a mom or a dad that your highest calling right now is to pour out your energies as an imager of God to your kids and to own it and repent when you don't, but to pour that out into them as little people who you are raising to be big kingdom people. Or perhaps it's in relationships that reconcile racial or economic disparities. Or perhaps it's to walk alongside the lonely and the hurting, to offer hospitality at your table, to welcome into community. What I'm saying here is that engagement for Jesus looked like community and servanthood. He was with people. The disciples were with him. He could be interrupted. Who gets to interrupt you? Who do you get to interrupt? He was with people, but he was also a servant. He was giving out for others. Uh, And this is not a one-size-fits-all in the kingdom, but it's a process of discernment to say, what has God called me to pour out? How do we do that? How do we live like this? We look to Jesus, the one who has an identity that's formed by the Father's love, an imagination that's saturated by the scriptures, habits of withdrawal and engagement. He is the map, but he's also the pioneer. He's already gone before you, and you get to stand complete in his perfection because he has gone ahead of you. He is the complete one, and he completes you, and he invites you to find your completeness in him in fellowship and communion with him so we can have what he had and become like him as he is through union with Christ by the power of the Spirit. And that's something we celebrate with the bread and the cup each week. We rip off this little wafer that represents the body of Christ that was given for you. We take this cup that represents his shed blood, that he actually did what was necessary to have you be in right relationship with God, which meant his death for your life. And we celebrate this participation in his life through this bread and cup. Maybe today you're in a spot where you're not a Jesus follower. You're you're here online or here just checking out faith, and that's so commendable. Let me just encourage you with this. Would you look at Jesus' life and ask the question, does any of this resonate as a life of peace and joy and fullness that you deeply long for? Stay in it. Stay in the conversation. Be open. Tell God you're open. And engage it. And perhaps God is calling you in this moment to turn and trust and say, I'm actually exhausted from going my own way. That I need a life that is transformed like this life of peace and joy that I see in Jesus. Maybe today you're here and you're saying, I'm a believer, I've been in church, and if I'm really honest, at the beginning of this year, I look at the life of Jesus and I think, I don't want that. It doesn't sound good to me to be in community that way or to, I like to call the shots on my identity or 
I don't really want to be saturated with another story. I want to live my own story. Or I just, I don't want withdrawal. It scares me or whatever that is. Let me just encourage you that if you're already in that spot of recognizing where you don't want to resemble Jesus, you're already ahead of the game. You can actually now own that and bring that before the Lord and say, Holy Spirit, would you help me want the life of Christ? Would you work in these places where I don't find him attractive? Help me to see the ugliness I think is attractive for what it is and show me the beauty of Christ for what it is. Maybe others of you today, you're looking at the life of Jesus and you go, that feels really out of reach still. It still feels like you just told me to get it together. Let me encourage you again here and just say that the Spirit is kind and helpful. This is a moment to come to God this week and say, God, I want your help to take one step of transformation, one step of doing the work of who I am, of doing the work of asking myself what story I'm believing, to take one step of what are my practices and my habits this week and how do they join me to Jesus or how do they distract me from him? He's faithful, he's gone before you in Christ and he offers you a path that's both adventurous and infinitely secure because of what Christ has done. He's given his life, he's shed his blood and we celebrate that, the bread and the cup. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for sending the son. We thank you, Jesus, for coming and living as the pioneer, as the priest, as the map. You waypoint us home. We thank you, Spirit, that you come and indwell and empower. You are the helper, the one who leads us where we truly want to be, which is toward the likeness of Christ. We thank you that this life, this life we see in Jesus is anything but far from us, but it is close at hand through your Spirit. May we embrace what you have for us in your word today as your church. Help us, Jesus, to resemble you more and more this week in Christ's name.